0: Let's go to this most gracious God of ours in prayer, ask that he would bless our time together in the proclamation of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize you as the great and awesome God, our heavenly Father who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with all those who love him and keep his commandments. We recognize you as the thrice holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God who draws near to his people in love and yet never forsakes his holiness. We ask, Father, that you would draw near to us this hour, that you would teach us, Lord, to live and love in accordance with your holiness, that we would know you and see you and experience You as You revealed Yourself in Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would forgive us as a people and as a church for all the times we have brought strange fire before You, worshiping You individually or collectively in a manner not pleasing to You. We ask that You would show us how You came down from heaven in Christ and how Your Son went to the cross to destroy that barrier of sin that keeps us completely from You. We ask, Lord, that you would be pleased in revealing your glory to those this morning who have repented and believed. We ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to show your glory to those who do not know you yet, that you might call them in to become sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with such a love and joy this morning, a satisfaction so deep in you that we would, like Moses, be willing to stand against kings if necessary to serve God our Savior Christ. Make yourself known to us, Lord, as the holy and gracious God that you are. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time that we've gathered together. We ask as well that you would bless the gathering, the sacred gathering at Santa Cruz Baptist Church in Aptos this morning. We thank you so much for Pastor Drew Cunningham and the good work he's done these past five years in that area. We praise you for gathering that community of believers, taking First Baptist Aptos. We pray, Lord, that you would bless Pastor Kurt this morning as he brings the gospel of grace from Galatians 4, that you would give all those at Santa Cruz Baptist ears to hear and be wildly transformed into Christ's image, that they would be an amazing testimony to that community which is steeped in darkness and death. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to you, that you would this morning be gracious to draw us to you, that we might worship you properly. You are most worthy of it. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Good morning. Oh, I'm so thankful you are here. Uh, I had someone this week lovingly rebuke me, and it was a loving rebuke. I was explaining to him how excited I was to be in Exodus, and he said, with all due respect, you're excited in every book you preach, and that's a true statement. Um, I do. Every, every, Every book that I'm in, I think this is the best book, and it should be like that for us, right? Every time we're saturated in the Word of God, the one we should be most excited about is the one that we're feeding upon at that moment. Um, That said, I do think that Exodus is extraordinary, I do. I think that it's just one of those books that it's hard not to be captivated by because God's revelation is so profound and so incredible for us to see. Um, I pray that you have been rightly captivated these last few weeks. Uh, We're going to make our way up through, I think, chapter 20, so we've got several weeks to go. The story gets bigger, the miracles get bigger, God's revelation even more grand and I think even greater food for us to feast upon. Um, this morning, if you have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 3, we will be looking at verses 1 through 10. Title of the sermon, God Drawing Near. God Drawing Near. And we're going to see an emphasis here of a desire for a right relationship between God and His people. Um, over the years, as I have spent time with those who are near death, there has been a common theme of reflection in their life. Usually there's this aspect of, for those who are professing believers, wishing they had spent more time with God in prayer and in scripture. Usually work not done that they wish they had done. In addition to that, there's usually a dialogue about people they wish they had f- fixed a relationship that was broken. You know, those, those last hours where they said, oh, I wish I, this could have been right, that I could have gotten rid of this barrier with my wife or my husband or a child or a or a friend. And so what we're going to see here is God drawing us in as well and his desire to have you be right with him, no barriers, no sin, so that you can know Christ in such an intimate way that that will not be a concern for you on your deathbed, that you will know him through and through and as he knows you. When Jacob reached Beersheba, as he was leaving the promised land, he was being called out of the promised land and into Egypt. On the night before he left the promised land to join Joseph and the rest of his family, God appeared to him in a vision. This is Genesis chapter 46, listen. God draws near to Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. 400 years later, God speaks to Moses. Look at verse 4 and what he says. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. 400 years pass, and now God breaks his silence, and he appears to Moses here in the burning bush in order to do what? To fulfill the promise he had made to Jacob. I went down with you. I made you into a great nation. And now it was time to bring that nation out of Egypt and into the promised land. God is faithful to his promises. Moses has now been in Midian for 40 years. He's now the young spry age of 80. He has been prepared for 40 years to be the savior of Israel. God brought him as a sojourner in a foreign land. He made him a husband. He made him a father. But most importantly, he made him a shepherd, shepherding sheep. And through this humiliation and service and training, now Moses, at the age of 80, was ready to be used by God to deliver God's people, to fulfill the promise God made to Jacob 400 years prior. So this morning, I'd like us to look at how God sets his saving work in motion. How he did it then and how he will do it now, how he does it through his church as he did it through his people centuries ago. And I want to do that by looking at three things, drawing near in love, this is God to us, keeping his distance in love, and then closing the gap in love. How God draws near to us in love, how he keeps a distance in love, and then how he closes that gap completely. And I pray that this passage blesses you as much as it did me this week. It was a a treasure to study. So point number one, God draws near in love. Listen with all your might. Verse 1, Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the, mount, the mountain of God. So our, our once 40-year-old prince of Egypt, we find him now a lowly 80-year-old Shepherd of the sheep of Jethro. Shepherding sheep, it's another life for him entirely. We know that shepherds were looked, not looked upon well by Egyptians. Moses went from being a prince in the most powerful country to, to occupying a position in the desert as a lowly shepherd. He was a nomadic shepherd, and nomadic shepherds were constantly moving to find water and food for their sheep. And we pick up our story here again and we find Moses going west, far west actually, to the Sinai Peninsula and to a place called Horeb. Now you might not recognize that, that was better pronounced as an area, but you will recognize the mountain at Horeb and that is Mount Sinai, probably one of the most famous mountains in all of sacred scripture. In this place where God would, in a matter of months, descend upon the mountain and reveal himself in fantastic fashion, he reveals himself here. Same mountain, same place to Moses in a burning bush. Now, churched or unchurched, I imagine most of you have heard this story about God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. It's one of the greatest and most um, famous theophanies in the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And so I want you to notice, God's the one who takes initiative. Moses is not out looking for the Lord. The Lord comes to Moses. And the Lord comes to Moses not as a messenger, not in the form of a letter or a dream, but in a theophany. Now, that's a, a big word to talk about how God's equivalent presence comes to earth and appears to man. It's a, a, a physical or, or, or perceptive manifestation of God on earth. In the Old Testament, we have lots of these theophanies, these divine manifestations in the form of dreams, visions, in the form of a man, in the form of angels. To to Job, it was in the form of a whirlwind, whatever that looked like. But here, God comes as as fire. He comes as fire upon a single bush, and the bush remains unconsumed. Look at verse 2 again. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. So this was a God that had power over nature. This was a God revealing himself in a supernatural way. This God in the form of fire is introduced to us as the angel of the Lord. Now, that term appears in the Old Testament 67 times, so you're probably familiar with it if you know the Old Testament. Sometimes it literally is an angel sent by God. But other times... It is actually God himself. In fact, you could translate that in this case as the angel Yahweh, the angel God. We saw the angel of the Lord back in Genesis chapter 21 when he, God, appeared to Hagar. We saw the angel of the Lord when he appeared to Abraham in Genesis 22 right before Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. It is God. And so this encounter that Moses is having is with the living God, Yahweh. After 400 years of silence, God breaks in in fantastic fashion. He doesn't come quietly. He condescends. He comes to earth, and He draws near to His people. He's not like the pagan gods of Abraham's day. He's not like the pagan gods of Moses' day. This was a God who did not stand afar and look upon the sufferings of His people. He comes near. He draws near in love. He is a God who desires intimacy and proximity. And so your question must be, well, if that's true, then why comes fire? You can't hug fire. You don't get too close to fire unless you get burned. Of all the theophanies that God could appear to Moses as, why fire? Why fire? God, using fire, will not be the, this is not the first or the last time we will see him reveal himself as such. In Genesis chapter 15, when God made that unilateral covenant, with Abraham. He appeared to Abraham as a smoking what? Fire pot and a flaming torch to ratify the covenant. We see him here in Exodus 3 as a flame of fire. In Exodus 13, we're going to see him appear to the people, to the nation as a pillar of cloud by day and what? Fire by night. And, of course, his most extraordinary theophany in the Old Testament, which caused the the, the nation of Israel for generations to shudder, was his descending upon Mount Sinai. From Exodus chapter 19 through 24, he descends as a devouring fire. Ezekiel would see the pre-incarnate Christ as a fiery shape. Daniel would see him as one sitting on a throne of fire. And, of course, we know the apostle John In the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.14, he describes Christ as one with eyes of fire. And so many commentators rightly say, this is Christ. This is the second person of the holy triune God speaking to Moses from the bush. And I think they're right. I do. I think all those grand theophanies in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate Christ revealing himself to man, drawing near to man. I've often wondered, my beloved, if these repeated theophanies of fire are one of the primary reasons that we are so captivated by flames. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been to a campfire and everybody sits around the fire and they stare at the fire? I think this is an odd thing. We don't stare at water and we don't stare at trees, but we stare at fire. And I wonder if in part because God has so consistently revealed himself as such that there's something captivating about it. I'm not going to hang my hat on it, but it's, it's interesting to say the least. In choosing fire as this mode of manifestation to Moses, God is revealing something imperative about his character that Moses had to know, that the people had to know, and that we as a church must know, and that is his holiness, his holiness. Fire is pure, and it is purifying. Fire has the amazing ability to burn away contaminants and reduce things to their most basic nature, these qualities of fire make fire very dangerous if not handled properly. I mean, we, living in California these past couple of years, of all people, we should know. Right? You talk to people in the South, they talk about hurricanes, and they, they talk about tornadoes, but they say, oh, you're from California, and they think we're all on fire. And uh, understandably so. The, the campfire in Paradise, California last year, it killed 88 people, destroyed 150,000 acres, and over 14,000 structures. It was the most deadly fire in the state of California's history God like fire is both pure and purifying pure in that he is holy through and through and when I say that I couldn't spend the next 10 hours describing that sufficiently when I say that he is holy he is without sin he is without blemish he is perfectly pure in all of his qualities Habakkuk 1 13 said of God your eyes are too pure to look on evil You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He is ultimately and eternally set apart from everyone and everything else. There is no one like God because God is holy. And that makes His holiness, I believe, like fire for sinners, a very dangerous thing because His holiness is not passive. It is active. It is active in revealing our our base nature. And we know what that base nature is. Fire has a tendency to bring things down to basic elements. God does the same with us. He reveals to us when he draws near to us the depth of our own sin. For those who take God and his holiness lightly, the end is usually death. Do you remember what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 6 when we went through that fantastic book? And that was a great book also. Do you remember that? Remember the Ark of the Covenant comes back to the promised land? And oh, those poor men at Beth Shemesh, they looked, 1 Samuel 6 19, I'll give it to you straight. God struck down 70 men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the covenant and they were not supposed to. God's holiness is not to be taken lightly. And so the danger man finds himself in when he draws near to God is not our lowly positions. I've heard that taught and I do not agree. It's not our lowliness as creatures relative to the majesty of God. Adam and Eve had no problem walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden before sin. They did not hide from Him. It was only after they sinned against God and cast all of humanity, including us, into sin and rebellion that they hid themselves from His holy presence. And that is the reason, my beloved, that the world flees from God today. The light came into the world, but what? We love the darkness. And so when we see the rejection of Christ and the church, when we see the rejection of God's holiness through the Word of God, it is because of His holiness that reveals the depth of our own sin. And so God begins the salvation of His people by revealing Himself to Moses, by revealing His holiness to Moses, drawing near to Moses, but not without revealing how holy He truly is. So... God being a fire is very much like our moms used to say. If you play with fire, what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. My beloved, we ought not play with the God of the Bible. He is not a God to be played with or taken lightly. This God, Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He is absolutely pure holiness, and that holiness demands our attention, our reverence, our adoration, our submission, our fear. If we miss this, my beloved, and you play with fire, then there's a chance of getting burned eternally. This is where God begins with Moses because this is where God must begin with all who will repent and believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. It must be with God drawing near to us first. We will not draw near to him. No one seeks after God. He must come to us first because the chasm between God and man as a result of our sin is infinite. So he must condescend. He must come to us. That's why Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. We must be drawn, and upon coming near to God, we must see. First and foremost, I would argue, above all other characters and attributes of God is His holiness. We must see that, even if it's a glimpse, it's sufficient to transform, we must see that Set apart from all creation is this God, infinitely pure, eternally good, the very definition and foundation of love and grace, of goodness and joy. It is God. And I would argue, now please listen, if you did not begin your journey like this in Christ, if you came to God in any other way than upon your knees with a broken and contrite heart, crying out for holiness... If you came to God in any other way than seeing the holiness that He presents to us in Christ, the depth of our own sin, and crying out to Jesus for mercy, then I might say, my friends, that you might not know Him. You might know an idol or a perception of God, a perversion of God. But God begins like this with all servants and all who will be saved. He reveals Himself to us personally, intimately, His holiness, our sin, and the need for Christ. If you do not know that, then your profession may be in vain. And I say that in love. So first, I pray that we see that God draws near to us in love, and in so doing, He reveals His holiness. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, God keeps His distance in love. That may sound oxymoronic. How can He love us and keep His distance? You'll see, look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, he's talking about Moses, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So as our theophany continues, God in the form of a flame speaking from a burning bush, exclusion or separation was not going to be the last word according to God. He was going to draw near to his people. He's drawing near to Moses. Moses is curious. It was not uncommon, my beloved, for a bush to be burning in the desert. That was not uncommon. It was uncommon for the bush to be on fire and not consumed. And so Moses looks and he sees this bush is on fire, and yet it remains intact. And so Moses, like us, we'd we'd get closer. We'd want to see how this was happening. And then Moses hears, listen, this theophany was audible, physical fire, audible voice. He hears an audible voice coming from within the bush saying what? Moses... Moses, my beloved, come on. He's 80 years old. He's been shepherding sheep in the desert for 40 years. He must have thought, I'm hallucinating. I'm hearing things. I mean, I've lost my mind. Moses, Moses, speaking from a flame in a burning bush. In the Semitic culture, repetition of one's name was a sign of endearment. Did you know that? I love that. It was an affection. And an affectionate way to address a spouse or a child or a friend. Remember we saw in Genesis 46, God said, Jacob, 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 Jacob. It's not because Jacob wasn't listening. We do that as parents. We say it again and because they're not listening. This is not the problem. This is an affectionate call. For those of you who remember your, oh, how you so loved your British literature. and Shakespeare, remember, Juliet called out what? Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? It was a term of affection. And so God is coming to to Moses. He draws near to Moses in a theophany. And then he expresses through a mode of communication this intimacy. Moses, Moses. And then Moses says, here I am. Here I am. And then God says something in verse 5 that almost seems not that affectionate. For Moses' well-being, for the well-being of all sinners, he says, now stand back. Look at verse 5. And then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. One of the prevailing themes you're going to see through the rest of Exodus, through the rest of the Old Testament, and into the New Testament is that approaching the living, all powerful, all knowing, omnipresent, thrice holy God is dangerous. I know I say that in our culture, and we think, yeah, dangerous, this God of the Bible. That's why we see God put laws into place to protect his people. He put purification laws into place, sanctification laws. He built a tabernacle. He built a temple to create right barriers, rules of worship, not for his sake, but for their sake. A sinner coming into the presence of a thrice holy God without a covering, without some means by which to make us holy, will die. Jeremiah 23, 19, remember, the wrath of God is active, not passive. The storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. God's holiness is not partial. He cannot choose to be just and then unjust. He must treat all sinners alike. The very foundation of these barriers, the law, the tabernacle, the temple, the holiest of holies, it starts right here. Do you know that? It starts right here in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, with Moses, two commands, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place upon which you're standing is holy ground. Two commands, do not come near. Come close, but not too close. I'm God, you're a sinner. Moses, if you do that, you will die. Second command, take your sandals off your feet. So that's, that's weird. What is it about his sandals? Oh my goodness, the commentaries were berserk on this. I think it's real simple. When God descended, he made that dirt Holy. And so he's calling for holiness in Moses too. So he says, get those filthy sandals off your feet. You're on ground of which I am occupying and therefore that very dirt is holy. In other words, we see God's desire here to be intimate with Moses in Moses' presence. He descends from heaven. He reveals himself. He calls Moses affectionately by name. And at the same time, he's saying to Moses, you can't just Run into my presence, Moses. There are rules for this. There's obedience required. There's a right worship of me, he says to Moses. And I believe grievously that many in the Western church, many Christians in the Western world have lost an understanding of the holiness of God, even in Christ. When professing Christians and churches attempt to worship God Individually or collectively, in a manner that is not prescribed in the Bible, we are on dangerous ground. Holy laughter, yeah, that's worth laughing about. Slaying people in the Spirit, speaking in unknown tongues, I'll give you a few more pointed ones for us, female preachers and pastors, scripturalist services, concert-like venues, Pastors that joke from the pulpit all the time. I don't get it. Pastors that spend the entire 50 minutes talking about themselves. I don't get it. These are strange fires, my beloved. Like Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. You remember this, Leviticus chapter 10. What happened? Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died. Anybody who has any sense of the holiness of God as revealed in the Bible knows that we individually or collectively as a church need to be careful not to have unauthorized fire. Strange fire. Deadly fire. And knowing this danger, God is so gracious, he offers Moses limited access. He says, come near not too close and now get those sandals off your feet because I'm holy and you're not. To Adam and Eve, He said, you want to commune with me? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To Noah, he said, you want to to commune with me? Then build an ark and get on that ark because I'm going to destroy the world. To Abraham, he said, you want to commune with me? Then offer your son as a sacrifice, the son of promise. And to Moses, he gives a single command. He says, take your sandals off. And it seems so benign, right? Relatively speaking, But it didn't really matter because God was establishing obedience in faith. He was establishing the means by which all people would come to him. Obedience in faith. Moses, take off your sandals. Yes, Lord. And Moses did. And it was no small matter. It was a matter of life and death. Had Moses said no, I dare say that would have been the end of Moses' story. No more of Moses. Had he said, no, Lord, I will not. For the Christian, now listen... There's an extraordinary extrapolation from this truth. For the Christian who's been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit now dwells in you, that means whether you're lying down, standing up or seated right now, the ground upon which you stand, sit, lie down, sleep, awake is holy ground. Holy ground, I'm looking at your feet, where your feet are right now. This place of which I am standing, the holiness of this place Gathering of people. And therefore, my beloved, it makes sense that our entire lives should be lived out with this truth in mind. Spirit in me, this is holy ground. Wherever I go, therefore, my words, my thoughts, my relationships, the work that I do, the play that I do, everything that I do must be with this central understanding that I am standing upon holy ground. To take off your sandals is to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. To take off your sandals is to recognize, listen, that you have been crucified with Christ, and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you, and the life you now live in the body, you live by faith, what? In the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Galatians 2.20. Time had passed, but God had not changed. The promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had not changed. And now he appears to Moses and he says, guess what, buddy? You're coming on in. I got a glorious plan here and you're going to be part of it. He wasn't, even, he wasn't just going to send Moses to participate. He was going to send Moses to lead in the fulfillment of this great promise he made to Jacob 400 years prior. A promise that Moses begins to understand. Now listen, it goes way beyond national. Israel. It goes way beyond simply getting out of Egypt and getting into the promised land. Moses gets a glimpse that this mission he's on is an eternal mission of eternal life and eternal death for those who would obey God in faith. Look at verse 6. You say, where am I getting this? I'm not just making this up. Look at verse 6. God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Amram, Moses' father, is likely dead. Moses is 80. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know are dead. 400 years have now passed. And yet God says something here quite extraordinary in the present tense. In the present tense, not past, he says, I am the God of your father, Amram. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob right now. In other words, through the covenant promise made, To Moses' ancestors, centuries before, these men, these three men, and all who followed in faith are still alive. And that's what God is saying to Moses, that I am the God, this God speaking, audibly speaking from this flame of fire in the bush is their active, living God. He had not abandoned them to the grave. His father was alive. Abraham was alive. Isaac was alive. Jacob was alive. In other words, Moses is getting a crash course on eternity. Eternal salvation, eternal life, and eternal death. He's getting a crash course here. Do you remember when the Sadducees came to our Lord in Matthew chapter 22 and they had this they were trying to trick him because they wanted to crucify him and they they tried to get him on the idea of the resurrection. The Sadducees did not that sect of Judaism did not believe in the resurrection. Jesus said, as far as the resurrection of the dead, this is from Matthew twenty-two, thirty-one, 31 and following, have you not read what was said to you by God? Quoting our verse, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is, not the God, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at this teaching. This God is alive. The people with whom God has redeemed, those who have believed by faith, are alive, and so God for Moses is no longer this distant reality or this God of the forefathers that he would heard about. He is a very real, powerful, ever-present God, and he's telling Moses, listen, I got a mission for you, and it goes way beyond national Israel. It goes way beyond just calling my people out of bondage and bringing them into the promised land. He's telling Moses, I have a mission for you about eternal promise for all who believe, and that includes us. What was Moses' response for this? Look at the latter part of verse 6. Moses lifted his face. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's too much. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, all right, look, Moses, come follow me. It's another thing to say, Moses, come, and I'm going to present you to Pharaoh, and you're going to lead my people out of the promised land. He's saying, you're involved in eternal souls. And so Moses' response in the presence of God is what man's response generally is. He hides his face. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they hid in the garden, responding to their own sinfulness in light of the holiness of God. Moses, probably for the first time, got that real sense of his own humiliation and his own shame and his own sin as he stared into the theophany of God's holiness. It's the right response, my beloved. As I said in point number one, this is the necessary response. We all know what happened to the great prophet Isaiah when he was ushered into the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6. One of my favorite passages, Isaiah 6, 5, he sees God seated high upon the throne and what does he say? Woe to me. Woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The false religions of this world Certainly the prevailing culture in which we live, and I would argue many churches in the West, have lost the centrality of God's holiness and man's sin. We are foolish enough in many churches to talk about man's goodness in light of the holiness of God, as if there is a heaven and all are welcome, regardless of salvation or cleansing or being made holy, regardless of faith or no faith, but the Bible tells us clearly, and you all know this, Romans chapter 3, Paul made it very clear, there is no one good, no, not one. Not one. And the only way to come into the presence of God as sinners, the only way to come into His presence and not be destroyed is to be made holy too. We have to become holy as God is holy if we're going to commune with, come into the presence of, Intimately forever, a holy God. So the question is, how, how how does this happen? God intentionally reveals himself as purifying fire. He comes down, he, he draws Moses to him, he calls him in love, and then simultaneously says, Take off your shoes and don't come too close. How do we overcome this barrier? How will God remove sin once and for all so that he can be a God who says, come all the way in, shoes or no shoes? How can a holy God who by his nature is infinitely good and must punish all sin, be intimate with a sinner like you or a sinner like me? How does he do that? I mean, that is the question that you want to know the answer to. Because to answer that question means that you can come and commune with God intimately and personally. No barrier. Do you want that answer? Because that's the third point. God closes the gap in love. So God had plans for his people, he had plans for Moses. God's plans were not going to be stopped by the brutality of the Egyptians, they were not going to be thwarted by the sins of the Israelites. They were not going to be stopped because of His own holiness. God was going to overcome all these to bring His people all the way in. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. So if you were here last week you say, "Oh that sounds familiar." It is. It's a recapitulation of Exodus chapter 2 verses 24 where God says, "I've seen my people's afflictions. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I know them as their God." And so I have come down to do what? Look at verse 7. To save, he says, my people. God identifies himself with the Israelites. Because of the covenant made with Abraham so long ago, he says, "I've, I've seen the suffering, I've heard their cries, and I've come down to affirm the covenant relationship I have with them, my people, that I would be their God and they would be my people, children of the promise, children of faith. You see, the Lord had promised to Abraham a very different ending to the story that they were currently experiencing. They were in bondage as sojourners in a foreign land, but that was not the end of their story. In fact, that was just the beginning of their story. They were not to be slaves. They were to be free people, and they were not to live as sojourners. They were to live in their own land, a promised land. And we get, we get some descriptions here. It says, this land, which was part of the covenant promise was to be spacious. In other words, it would to be broad and there weren't going to be restraints on them. They weren't going to be cramped people but have lots of space to live and to prosper. And it says that the land would be flowing and you've heard this multiple times. We'll hear it again throughout Exodus. Flowing with milk and honey. And it's a frequent metaphor used to describe the, the beauty of the land and the plushness and the prosperity of both the, the soil and the crops and the, the, um, the herds that would grow and then it gives us a list of these tribes. And if you don't really, I mean, I guess it would be hard to just know this. It's actually describing the parameters of the land. It lists it geographically. The Canaanites on the coast, the Hittites in the hill country, the Perizzites were in central Palestine, the Hivites were to the north, and the Jebusites occupied Jerusalem. And so he, he gives them those names because these are the people that are living there now, but you're going to take all of that land so it will be a spacious land given to you. In other words, this was not just some political independence that God was going to make for his people. It wasn't just giving them a place they could call their own. Now listen, it was to become Israel's holy ground. Right? This promised land was to become the nation's holy place. A place where God's people would live as a holy people in the presence of a holy God. And that was the plan all along and still is the plan that God would make a holy people for His own name's sake and He would commune with them forever and never. It was a glimpse. It was a glimpse of Eden regained, was it not? A foreshadowing of the promised land to come for the church of Jesus Christ. Certainly a word of encouragement for those of us now who are in Christ that we are on holy ground and this is the promise that we have God now and forever. But even though God had come down from heaven and said to Moses, through you I'm going to set my people free and bring them into the promised land, if you've been listening closely, it did not relieve the problem. It did not relieve the barrier of sin, of their own sin. So how how would God eliminate the barrier? How would he make a holy people that could come all the way in? Because that's what we want. At all those Deathbed confessions where I want it to be right. I want it to be restored. I want the intimacy and proximity with that person I love. And you don't don't want to get a glimpse of God and then have God say, stand off. You get a glimpse of God and you want to be brought all the way in. You want God to somehow close that gap, remove the barrier, come all the way in. So how, how could he draw near to us? As sinners, How will he remove the barrier? Look at verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. God says, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And there's God's plan. God comes down from heaven, heaven and he sends a savior, Moses, to set his people free. We're going to spend, my beloved, the next several weeks examining how this plan plays itself out in miraculous fashion. Moses, under the power of God, by the word of God, would set his people free from the bondage of Egypt. And God would bring them out miraculously for his own glory. So that even today, in 2019, we will talk about the power and the majesty of God by the miracles he exercised so long ago. But as we see this, I pray we do not miss the fulfillment of God's global plan for his people. It's the exact same plan, how he would redeem people out of slavery and sin and into holiness that he might commune with us. The plan for saving God's people out of Egypt is the same plan he has for saving his people today. What was that? Come down from heaven and send a savior. Real simple. We don't want to get confused on this. Complicated plans oftentimes don't work well. God had a simple plan. I'm going to come down from heaven and I'm going to send a savior. The difference being in this case, God descended and he sent Moses a man. Here, God descended and God sent himself God. John 6.38, Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven. God, second person of the triune God. I have come down from heaven. Not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The Savior is God. Moses was not God. Moses was a man, a sinner who needed to be saved by God. Jesus Christ is God. So God doesn't come down as an angel. He doesn't come down as a whirlwind. He doesn't come down as a a flame of fire. He He comes down in the perfect theophany. The perfect theophany is Jesus Christ. It is the man, fully God, fully man, our Savior. And he came to do his Father's will. What was that? In the most simple terms, to bridge the gap. Right? To bridge this gap. The problem of sin remained. God wants to draw near to us. He wants to bring us all the way in. So Jesus Christ to, to, came to overcame for all who repent and believe this barrier of sin that keeps us from being united to God in love now and forever. Jesus Christ came to remove the barrier. Now listen, so that God can say to you, sinner, don't stand off, come in. So God no longer has to say to us, take off your sandals. Jesus accomplished this for us on our behalf, my beloved, overcoming the barrier of sin that keeps us from God by doing what? What did Jesus do? He took his sandals off. He took his tunic off. He took his cloak off. Our Lord took everything off and ascended the cross to take our shame. He endured the cross. He despised its shame for the joy that was set before him, and that was redeeming a people for his Father's glory. Jesus took the punishment, as you know, that we deserved for our sins in our place. That's the equivalent of hell. So that we could have what? What we so desperately need, the righteousness of God. We could have Jesus' righteousness that he earned by his sinless life, his sinless death, and his resurrection. He earned that, and then he gives it to us freely by grace through faith. And it's the righteousness that we need to ascend the hill of the Lord. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter the throne room of God? Those are the pure hands. Those are the pure heart. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. For what reason? To present you holy in his sight. Why? You can't be presented without you being holy. And then he said, without blemish and free from accusation. Christ died that we might become holy, to come into the presence of God and have that sweet, intimate communion. No barrier, no sin. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew that at the precise moment of Jesus' death, when he took his last breath, the curtain inside the temple, we're going to learn about this a little bit more, in the holiest of holies, which which was the inner sanctum of both the tabernacle and the temple, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of God. It's where God would descend in His Shekinah glory and meet with Israel. And it was inside that temple, inside that holiest of holies, the Ark of the Covenant was veiled by a curtain, a thick curtain, that only the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, could enter into. And yet we're told in Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 51, at that moment of His death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Why? So God could no longer have to say to you, come close, but not too close. It was torn from top to bottom through the Savior, His flesh being broken on our behalf so we could come all the way in. So this is the great news. That God can say to you as a sinner saved by grace in Christ, He can say to you this. He can say, my beloved, come close. He can say to you, son or daughter, Draw near. Come all the way into my throne room. Come into my very presence. Experience my love. Experience my adoration without fear, without shame, without hiding your face as Moses did. God the Father says to you in love, my son has removed permanently, as far as the east is from the west, all of your sin, all of your shame. It is no more. And so, God can come to us. He can speak to us. And He can say, Come all the way in. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the sins of the church are removed forever. This is the good news of the gospel of grace that through Jesus Christ, no barrier exists between you and God anymore. Not now, not next week, and not for all eternity. Peter said. Christ suffered once for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. For what purpose? To bring you to God. To bring you all the way in, not standing outside his gates, but all the way into the throne room, seated upon his throne with Christ. You can't get any closer. And if I read my Bible correctly, that means the Holy Spirit that now dwells in you will dwell within you forever. That is proximity that God desires and He creates in us through Christ. Oh, my, oh, my. Unlike Moses who hid his face from God and was told not to come near, we can enter in Christ boldly, boldly. Hebrews chapter 10, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's your confidence, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is His own flesh, the breaking of His body, the spilling of His blood, tears the curtain, opens the door and says, come on in through faith. Let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of our faith. Let us draw near. No longer you have to stand at a distance, my beloved. And some of you are this morning. No longer must you take off your shoes to be holy before God. Only by faith, only by grace, you can stand in the presence of God. Faith in knowing that your sins, as we had a chance to sing, though many and though deep, have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and you are white as snow. Right now, if you are in Christ, he said, Oh, you have no idea the sins I struggle with. Oh, I do, because I do too. But right now, in the eyes of God, through Christ, you are white, you are pure, you are holy. And that's why we can gather like this. That's why we can sing to God without being hypocrites. That's why we can take communion today, as we will, and eat his flesh, and drink his blood, and rejoice in his great work. You are holy, my beloved. You are holy. Not by your works, but by His. So I have a few questions. I'm going to close. Whatever barriers you have constructed in your life to keep you from this God who draws near, whatever it may be, reasons that you shy away from God or refuse to come in or come all the way in, sins that you think you must conquer first. A sister just told me this morning, she invited someone to church and this woman said to her, I'm a sinner, I can't go to church. I'm sure my sister said that's exactly where we're supposed to be. Maybe you think you have a good work you must do or a relationship you must mend first. Maybe you think that you have to have a particular feeling or religious experience Or exercise a particular religious practice in order to be saved or reestablish your relationship again. My beloved, all that was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross for you. Those are all things you can't do anyway. You can spend your whole life trying, you can't do it. You can't make yourself fit for God. Christ makes us fit for God. So all that you have in Christ, by grace, through faith. Is it that easy? Must I just believe? Yes. Belief is the entrance into salvation. It is the power upon which we then live in obedience to God. Faith, not works. It's by this faith that we can stand, sit, and lie down on holy ground and not be put to death by a holy God. We can stand, sit, and lie down on holy ground today, tomorrow, and forever because we stand, we sit, and we lie down in the righteousness of Jesus. And therefore, you can live today and for the remainder of your life with that full assurance of your faith that you are pure because Christ made you pure. If you are standing outside the throne room this morning, if you do not know the intimacy and love of which this God pursues you like the hound from heaven, then as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I implore you to repent and believe and enter the throne room. Why are you standing outside? The living creator, all joy, all goodness, all love, calls you to come. God calls all people everywhere. He commands all people everywhere to repent and be saved. One of the most glorious commands in the Bible repent and be saved. Turn from your sins, come to Christ, and live. Unlike Moses in the law, Christ was able by grace to close the gap completely, offering through the cross unfettered access to the presence of God. Unfettered access. Do you remember in the Gospel of Mark, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling and saying to him, if you will, you can make me clean. The man had faith, moved with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left the man and he was clean. My beloved, Jews did not touch lepers. Lepers were cast out of the communities. They were set apart in isolation. To draw near to a leper was to make the Jew unclean, and yet Jesus does something extraordinary. He draws near to, them. He draws near to the man, and then he reveals his saving power by touching him. Touching him. And in so doing, he made him clean. Christ calls you this morning to himself, lepers, sinners, sinners, He says, let me touch you that you might be clean now and forever so you can be part of the community of God, the holy gathering of God's people. Because that's how the story ends. It's not in bondage in Egypt. It's not enslaved to our sin. It is in the eternal glory, the eternal promised land of God with Christ. John gives us a picture of this barrier-free, glorious place where we will enjoy God and one another. Revelation 21.3, John said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God all the way in. Why would you deny yourself this? Why would you deny your friends and family by not telling them about Jesus? I have no good answer for those last two questions, and I don't think you do either. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in light of your holiness, we are rightly overwhelmed with your desire to draw near to sinners like us. Your holiness requires you stand at a distance. Your holiness requires in your goodness to destroy sin and sinners. And yet, by your grace and mercy, you had another ending to the story. You chose out of your love for us and your desire to glorify Christ to send your Son to truly do the unthinkable, to take our shame and our punishment so that we might have his righteousness. And having his righteousness, we now can enter the throne room. We can come in. We can know you and be known by you. We can love you and be loved by you. We can worship and we can sing and we can rejoice forever because of the work of Christ. Father, I pray that you would bless me, bless my brothers and sisters with this transformative knowledge that this is real, that you've been working the same plan of salvation, coming down from heaven and sending a Savior, going all the way back to the promise made with Abraham. And you are doing that work right now in our midst, saving us even this day. Enabling us to share the gospel with our friends and family and co-workers and neighbors that they too might repent and believe and be brought all the way in. Oh, Father, we want lots of people in. We want the throne room full of people who have been redeemed by Christ, that they will forever and ever sing of your glory. Use us mightily in that way. Cambrian Park Baptist Church, open our mouths, soften our hearts, cast our eyes upon the lost that we might see them as those who need to cry out for mercy and be saved. Father, we thank you for this passage. We are rightly overwhelmed by it. I pray you would press it upon our hearts deeply that we might be changed, not just today by it, but for the rest of our lives. Speak into our hearts in that way, I pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.